topical there on Easter. But now we're back into our uh, verse-by-verse, book-by-book study through the Bible. We're going to be starting the book of Colossians. Now, Colossians to me is one of those books that gets overlooked. Now, every book of the Bible is good, every book of the Bible is great, but let's just be honest, there are certain books of the Bible that kind of stir our heart a little bit more. When we mention Romans or something like that, or, or Hebrews, or maybe in the Old Testament, the idea of studying Genesis, you know, there's this little excitement that goes there. When you think of Colossians, you're like, Colossians, okay. You know, I'm sure there's some good stuff in the book of Colossians. I mean, obviously it made the cut. It's in the Bible. It's not that long. It's only four chapters. But I think if we really stopped and said, okay, what is the book of Colossians about? I don't know how many of us would really be able to stop and say, how does this pertain to life today? You know, these books were written 2,000 years ago. How does the book of Colossians pertain to what you're going through right now? And I would dare say the book of Colossians deals more with what we're going through today than a lot of other books in the New Testament. Because what was happening in the book of Colossians, isn't this hard to believe? 2,000 years ago, false teaching was already starting to creep into the church. You know what that false teaching was? It was taking away the deity of Jesus Christ. There was this false religion around during the early uh, church that was called Gnosticism. And what they believed was is that Jesus and the Messiah were two different things. Jesus was a human The Messiah was a spirit that came upon Jesus at his baptism and then right before Christ died when the spirit left him. And so Jesus was a man that had the spirit of the Messiah on him for three years. And so therefore, the Messiah never died. Jesus the human died. And they took this teaching to say, you know what, there's a spirit of God in you. So what you do in your flesh doesn't matter. Go out and do whatever you want. Say whatever you want to say because that's just your flesh. Your flesh is evil. Your flesh is sinful. That's going to die as long as your spirit is good. You know what? Same teachings around today. Same new new age ideas. The same idea of everybody is good. We all do some things we shouldn't. You know, but you know, God knows my heart. Same ideas around today. And also, isn't it fascinating that 2,000 years ago, they were trying to take away who Jesus was. See, the book of Colossians is all about Jesus. In this short little four-chapter book, depending on your translation, if you have King James or New King James, the word Christ is mentioned 24 times. It's all about Christ in this book. Now, why is that important? Well, you know, I like to throw out at you sometimes little uh, surveys that I've seen, and the one I like to use a lot is 80% of Americans claim to be Christian. 80%. And normally what we say to that is if 80% of America is Christian, there's some deep trouble going on in America. Because America is not acting like an 80% Christian nation by any means. So what's wrong? Well, when you dig a little further sometimes in these surveys, you get into some other information that's quite fascinating. Evangelicals. Evangelicals are the ones that you know, believe Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life. They are the ones that get out there and evangelize. That's why they're called evangelicals. And what happens there, though, is this. 37% of evangelicals don't think that Jesus is the only way. Now, isn't that amazing? One-third of people that claim to be evangelical Christians, one-third of them doesn't think that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And then of all Christians in the United States, 52% of American Christians believe that other religions can lead to eternal life. Now, there's a problem with this. If we're Christians... That means we're followers of Christ. That's what Christians mean. If you're a follower of Christ, that means you believe his teachings. His teachings say what? I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
And I bet you right now there's some of you sitting out here that you're thinking, well, yeah, I, I know that's what he said, but seriously, you're saying a billion Muslims, all the Hindus, all those guys, if they die right now, they're not going to heaven. See, the problem is you're saying that's what you're saying. I did not say any of this. Jesus himself said 2,000 years ago, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So as a Christian, if I'm a follower of Christ, that means I believe what Jesus said. He's the one that said he's the only way. Now, either Christ was confused or he really believes that. Well, the problem is when we look at Christianity today, I don't think a lot of us know who Jesus is. So when you look here at the book of Colossians, there's really, normally I always try to pick out what's the main passage of the book. Well, in the book of Colossians, I'm going to give you two main passages, if you will. If you would, jump ahead to Colossians chapter 2. Let's look at here two main verses that kind of explain what the book of Colossians is about. Colossians chapter 2, verse 19. It talks about holding fast to the head. Now the head is Jesus from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. How does the body grow? It grows when it's attached to the head. Who is the head? The head is Jesus Christ. How do you grow? You grow when you're attached to Christ. How does the body of Harvest Fellowship grow? When we're attached to Christ. How does the church in general grow? When we're attached to Christ. Now, we're not talking grow, who, grow here numerically. We're talking grow spiritually. This is how we grow and obviously stay in Colossians and go to Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. He, meaning Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He's the head, and all things he consists. Everything is Christ. Everything is Christ. If that's the only point that you get out of today's lesson, is that everything we do is for Jesus Christ, and that's good. Because so often in the world we live in, we think that we live for our own desires and passions. We think we live for what we feel good and what we want to do, when really what God is trying to say is you live for Jesus. The Bible says we're a bondservant. That means we're a willing slave to Christ. The truth of the matter is, if you go out there and live by your own passions and desires, you'll have fun for a little bit. But there's always going to be this emptiness. There's always going to be this hardship and this lack of peace in your life. Because why? You're living according to the flesh. You can never fulfill the desires of the flesh. You can have moments of fun. You can have a party that's good. You can have a relationship that's fun for a while. But unless Christ is the foundation of it all, it's really all futile. On the way out to church here this morning, drove by a house. And this is a house of, of, of a guy I know. He's come out here before intermittently every now and then, a uh, self-professed atheist. But, for some reason, keeps popping out to ask questions. So uh, he must be a lukewarm atheist, I don't know. <laughs> Drove by his house, and they must have had a party to end all parties last night. Chairs thrown across the yard. I've never seen so many beer cans in my life. And just the party to end all parties, I bet. Now, I don't know what he's feeling this morning. I don't know. I'm willing to bet he thought last night was probably pretty fun. But here's the thing. When you wake up this morning, last night is over. What is fulfilling you? What's the joy and peace that's getting you through the rest of the day, throughout the week? And I know this guy is not having full fulfillment and joy in life because he keeps contacting me. And we have the same conversation. 
the fool says in his heart there is no God. And if he doesn't think there's a God, I don't know why he keeps contacting a pastor <laughs> to talk. Point is, he's searching for something. You know, there is a hole that has to be filled and only can be filled by Jesus Christ. And you can chase every desire and fleshly thing in the world and it can fulfill you for a little bit, but unless you have Christ, it's all meaningless. He's the head. Everything comes from Him. All our nourishment, everything we do comes from Him. And this is what the book of Colossians is about. So what we have to ask ourselves before we dig into this book is, do we really have that? Do we really realize everything I do in life is going to be based on who Jesus is? You know, we just got done with Easter. Easter is a great holiday. I love it. It's a holiday where the world maybe stops turning for just a brief, tiny moment to focus on Jesus. Amongst the Easter bunny and the candy and the time off from work and the spring weather, maybe there's a glimpse into Christ. Now, the thing about Easter, though, is Easter ends. And you heard us say this out here. We say it every Easter. Every day is Easter because Jesus has rose from the dead. But the problem is we have this mindset sometimes of we do our thing. Maybe it's Easter. Maybe it's Sunday. Not to pick on anybody when I say this, but if the only God you get is Sunday morning from 10 to 11.30, you're really missing out on what a real relationship with Jesus is. heard a funny joke this week. There were three churches in the town, and these three churches all were struggling with squirrels, infestation of squirrels. Now, they all had different ideas how to deal with it. The first church said, you know what, who are we to say what God's will is? Who are we to say that God is not predetermined for these squirrels to be here? Who are we to say that it's not in God's plan for these squirrels to be at our church? So they did nothing, and the squirrels overtook and infested the church. Second group said, you know what, we're not going to hurt the squirrels. They're a beautiful creation of God. So they humanely trapped the squirrels. They safely let them go a distance from the church. Problem was, three days later, the squirrels came right back. Third church, though, said, you know what? They went, took the squirrels, baptized them, made them church members, and now they only see them on Easter and Christmas. (laughs) See, the point is that we have this mindset that we do our God thing. I mean, seriously, I know you do it because I used to do it, too. Get home from church. I'm done for the day. Get up Monday. I got church coming up. Now, silly analogy, but it works. Imagine if you only had your head on your body for an hour and a half each week. First off, you're not going to survive. Second off, if you do even survive in some freakish sort of way, (laughs) that's just crazy. But this is what we do with Christianity. We live without our head. Colossians is trying to tell you, your head, everything you do, is Jesus. And unless that's happening in your life, you are missing out. Now, this is not some type of message to attack you and tear you down. You're missing out. I mean, I see marriages that are falling apart, and I keep thinking, get focused on Christ. See lives falling apart, get focused on Christ. It doesn't do any good to throw stones at them. It doesn't do any good to go and choke them and force them deeper. They have to want to. They have to want to have that relationship with the head. Jesus. And this is what the book of Colossians is about. Remember, 24 times the name Christ is mentioned in these four little chapters. He is the preeminence of this book. Now, a lot of times when we start a book, when we look at the uh, greeting, we kind of skip over those verses. I want you to look at the first few verses here of Colossians, and you're going to see this even from the beginning. 
Verse 1 of Colossians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in church who are in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's just stop real quick. Do you not see the preeminence of Christ in those passages? First off, verse 1, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's talking to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. And then in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you not realize the importance of Christ? Paul says, I'm called by Christ to teach the saints in Christ about the peace and joy that comes from Christ. Now, if you want to take Jesus out of the equation, that's great. Problem is, what's Paul an apostle of? What are we saints and faithful brethren in? And where am I getting my grace and peace from? It's all Jesus. Now, a lot of you know this. You're saying, okay, yeah, I got it. It's all Christ. Okay, but here's the thing is, you may know it, but there's people in this church that don't know that. There's people you work with that don't know that. And there's maybe people in your house that don't know that. Part of the next step then is since we know it, if you already know it, what are we doing to tell other people about it? If we understand that everything I do in life comes from my relationship with Christ, why am I not out there trying to tell people? Not shove it down their throats, not force it, but Lord, open a door to tell people about you. That's the whole point. We want to tell people about Christ. See, in the first two verses of the book of Colossians, Christ has already mentioned three times. Paul's trying to say it's all about him till we get the point. He's the head. He's the focus. He is everything. So what do we do next? Verse 3, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now, that phrase, praying always for you, that got to me. Because we're going to talk about Paul's prayer here in a little bit. Paul is praying always for these people in Colossae. Now, a couple little side notes about Paul praying for them. First off, we know from studying out the book of Colossians, Paul never met these people. Now, you may say, okay, what's the big deal about that? Well, let me ask you this. How is your prayer life? Because I'm willing to bet all of you in this last week, maybe even today, you guys have all lied. Somehow, by probably someone coming up to you and saying something, opening their heart a little bit, saying, hey, I'm struggling with this, or keep my aunt in prayer, and you oh, I'll pray for you. We throw that phrase around all the time in Christianity. Oh, I'll pray for you. Now, do we follow up on that? See, Paul says he's praying always for these people. He never met these people. He never met them. Now, isn't that fascinating? When's the last time that you could say you prayed always for somebody you never even met? You know, we, we have those prayer request sheets that people fill out and they put, and then we have this long prayer sheet that has everything on it. And, you know, we have the prayer times on Wednesday nights that are faithful to pray through those. We have people who take those home and are faithful to pray through those. They never met some of those people. Never met them. But yet they're praying always for them. Why? Because even though you may have never physically met somebody, if they're saved in Christ, they're your brother or sister in the Lord. If they're not saved in Christ, hopefully they're your future brother or sister in the Lord. And Paul is praying always for them. So I encourage you, make that a part of your life is prayer. And not only prayer for yourself, because, you know, here's the thing. I pray for myself more than I pray for anybody else, because by human nature we're selfish. I pray for my family more than I pray for your families. Not because I don't love you guys, you know I love you. But my family. 
I pray for this church more than I pray for any other church. Am I against other churches? Of course not. But this is what I'm close to. So when I see Paul praying always for people that he never even met, that really hit me. It's like, wow, Lord, there's a lot of hurting people out there that I don't know. Well, I'm sure somebody else would pray for him. Maybe God wants me to pray for him. One of the first lessons I ever taught out here, 13 years ago, 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, and this verse still hits me. Samuel said, Far be it for me to sin against the Lord by not praying for you. I remember reading that verse and teaching that verse thinking, Prayerlessness is sin. Now that hit me. Because I remember I even went back and reread that. Far be it for me to sin against the Lord by not praying for you. And I remember I even went up to Jim, who was pastor at the time, and I said, Okay, am I getting this right? If I have a prayerless life and I'm not praying for my other brothers and sisters in Christ, that's sin? That's what Samuel said. Now that hit me. Now why is that sin? Because how many times throughout the Bible has the Lord said, Pray for everybody? God said to do it, I need to do it. Now I don't want this to be a legalism. I don't want you to go home now and say, oh my goodness, there's six billion people in the world. I'm not, I'm saying is when someone comes up and says, pray for this, you know what, I carry this thing around with me because I don't remember real well and if someone says, can you keep my aunt in prayer, I'm going to write it down because I really think I'm going to remember it and I'm not. And if I don't have it with me and someone says, hey, can you pray for this situation, generally as soon as I leave them, I stop what I'm doing and I just pray right then because I'm going to forget. I'm going to forget. And you know, Dawn and I, when we go through some prayers at home, we like to make a big list. I actually have written out marriages that are hurting, people who are going through physical struggles, people that are going through this, because in the middle of prayer, I'm not going to remember everything. And you know, here's the thing about prayer. Prayer is a lot of work. Prayer takes a lot of time. And in our fast food society that we live in, we don't usually make the time for prayer. This is what I've noticed. When we start going backwards instead of forwards in our walk with the Lord, one of the first things to go is usually church attendance. One of the next things to go, and maybe not even before that, is prayer. I don't got time to pray. And you know what? There's always time to pray. Sometimes it means shutting the TV off. Sometimes it means shutting the radio off. Sometimes it means getting up a little earlier. Once again, this is not a legalism. This is a, hey, you will be blessed by praying for other people because you spiritually invest your time and energy into them, and you think, wow, Lord... I care about this person, though I never met him. You know, we have this prayer line out here at church. What's the purpose of the prayer line? To get people praying. What good does it do to put somebody on the prayer line? 25 people are called and everybody says, Oh, okay, they need prayer for Fred. Let's go to the next step then and pray for Fred. This is what we need to do. So when Paul says, praying always for you. Wow. Now, next thing which I find interesting about Paul praying always for him, the book of Colossians was written when Paul was in prison. Now, some of you may be saying, well, he had nothing else to do then. Now, that's not the point. I'm telling you right now, if I'm in prison, the last thing I'm doing is praying for you. I'm praying for me. And I'm praying for me to get out of there as quick as I possibly can. Paul, while in chains, takes time to write an encouraging letter to the people of Colossae. And the most he says is, remember my chains at the end. That's the most he says. I'm telling you, if I was writing a letter from prison, I would whine and complain for about the first three pages. Paul is so focused on others that his own circumstance means nothing. I know some people, it's really difficult for them to pray because, to be quite honest, they have too big of a pity party going on in their own life. Well, this is wrong with me. This is what's going on. 
you know what? Part of prayer is when you focus on other people, things start to disappear. You know, there's that great hymn where it says, The things of this world will grow strangely dim. You know, isn't that true? When we think about the face of Jesus, the things of this world grow strangely dim. You know, we start thinking about my big problem. My big problem isn't my kids being diagnosed with cancer. My big problem is not my spouse who is deathly sick. My big problem is not that I don't have a job. My big problem is not loved ones who are in their deathbeds and don't know Christ. See, what happens then is when you start looking at that from perspective, you start saying, wow, Lord, I do need to pray for people. Or then I see people even go to a deeper pity party. Well, there's always somebody who's got it worse than me. I'm such a horrible person. You know what? Just pray for people. Quit thinking about everything and just pray. Because this is what we're supposed to do here. Praying always for you. I encourage you, make this a daily part of your life. Not only when you lift up your own concerns. There's nothing wrong with praying for yourself. Every now and then I have someone come up to me and say they feel guilty for praying for themselves. Guys, I've told you before, I pray more for me, my family, and the church than anybody. But yet there's also nothing wrong with taking that next step and in praying for the body, the fellowship. If you want a prayer request sheet, they have, sheets are available back there. It has all the requests that people have put on there throughout the years. And we want to pray for those. We want to be faithful. So Paul is praying for them. Now before we get to Paul's prayer, it's fascinating. He kind of says, I'm praying for you. Before he says what he's going to pray, he kind of reminds them of some stuff. Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it is also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who has also declared to us your love in the Spirit. I want to pick out a few words here for you. Look at verse 4. We heard of your faith. Verse 5. You heard before in the world the gospel. Go ahead, verse 6. The day you heard and knew the grace of truth. And verse 7. You learned from Epaphras. So heard is mentioned three times, learned is mentioned once. Do you not see a pattern that God is trying to say something here? You have to hear it. The way for the gospel to be spread is for people to hear it. It's great to go out there and just live your life. It is great when your life is such a shining testimony that just by your actions, people know you're believers. You're like one of those little fly strips. They just come to you and get stuck and they want to know about Christ. That's great. But you know what I notice a lot of times? Sometimes you've got to say something. <laughs> There's that great phrase of, you know, what does it go like? Witness, 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 and if you have to, use words. There's truth to that. Let your life be a shining moment. But there's also times where you've got to say something. And this is where a lot of times where I see Christians get a little skittish. They don't mind wearing the Christian shirts. They don't mind shining for the Lord. They don't mind getting out there and serving. But when God says, go talk to that person, send somebody else. See, these guys got saved by what? Hearing the gospel. Somebody took the time to tell them. Now there's also that heard of there, verse 4, since we heard of your faith. Now I've never heard faith in my life. Now I've seen faith. And that's what Paul's trying to say. He heard of their good works. He heard, even though he's never met these people. Boy, that church at Colossae. Early on fire for the Lord. 
Wouldn't that be cool if that was your reputation? People have never met you. The first thing they think of you is, well, I've never met him, but I've really heard that he just really loves the Lord. Wow, what a great testimony. That's hearing of your faith. But let's go to the next step. It's great for people to know of our good works. But let's tell them about Jesus Christ. See, you need to hear it. And then also verse 7 is, you also learned from Epiphras. See, Epiphras kind of, if you will, was kind of maybe the pastor of Colossae. We don't really know for sure exactly what his role was, but we obviously can tell he had some type of authoritative role. See, it's one thing to hear the gospel, but it's another thing to be taught it. You've heard us say out here numerous times before, what we do on Sunday mornings is a time of teaching, a time of preaching to take you deeper in your walks with the Lord, with the goal of you guys leaving this building than to go out and tell other people about Jesus Christ. I love it when someone invites an unsafe friend and loved one to church. That's great. But the main purpose of the church is to make disciples, is to take people deeper in their walks with the Lord. And then as you go deeper in your walk with the Lord, you go out and tell people about your walk in the Lord. You go out and share your faith. See, Epiphras taught them. They learned from him. See, here's the thing, though. A lot of us don't like to learn. It takes too much effort. You know, every now and then we'll have somebody come and ask about the church. And so I'll tell them a little bit about it. You know, when, what time do you guys meet? Oh, we go from 10 to 11.30. 10 to 11.30? And I said, yeah. I said, that's long. I said, well, you know. And I said, well, how, you know, what's the service like? And I said, you know, we do announcements, we do worship, etc. Then we usually teach. Well, how long do you teach for? I don't know, like 45 minutes or so? Wow. People don't get bored? Well, some of them do. You know, that's just a fact. I see it. But the truth of the matter is, for us, and once again, in our fast food mentality of the world, to take 45 minutes and sit down and say, teach me. I want to learn. Uh, we don't do that anymore, do we? You know, we tape our, our TV shows so that way we can fast forward through commercials. You know, now they have to have two lines at the drive-thru. You know, everything is so quick. I've shared this with you before. My favorite thing is I tried to find one time the smallest devotion I could find and the smallest one I could find was one minute with God. That was the devotional. Spend one minute with God every morning. That's our mentality. One minute with God, that's all I need. 365 minutes a year and I'll go deeper in my walk with Jesus Christ. No, you're not. Like I said, sometimes you've got to grab the granola bar out of the cupboard. That's all you've got time for. Sometimes you only got time to grab one minute with God. But you know what? You usually come back and eat a meal later on that day. Here the thing is, some people don't want to hear. They don't want to. They don't want to come to church because either it's boring, I get nothing out of it, etc. You know what? I've reached the point where it's like, hey, it's the Holy Spirit's job to lead, guide, and convict. It's not my job. You know, the doors, Richard always says, hey, the doors are open in ten. Whoever wants to come can come. Now, we miss you guys when you're not here, and we love you guys being here, but at the same time, too, we can't make anybody want to hear or learn. We can't. The church at Colossae, they wanted to hear. Obviously, they wanted to learn, and what happened with them is they went deeper in their walks. There's something so simple about just teaching God's Word, having a time of worship, having a time of fellowship, and then going out into the community and serve. Those four things are so simple, aren't they? You teach it, you worship, led by the Spirit to spread it, and you have fellowship. And God takes care of the rest. Love the simplicity of that. That's what they did back here at Colossae. They were taught, they heard, and in verse 3 and 4, they heard of their love. Verse 8, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Paul is saying, people are talking about you. 
They're talking about your love. They're talking about your faith. Now, quick question. What are people saying about you behind your back? Are they talking about your love and faith? I don't know. I don't know what people say about me. I don't know. Now, there's always going to be somebody who, no matter what you do, is going to hate you and say something bad. That's just a fact of life. But wouldn't it be great if the community, when they thought of you in your name or your family, the first thing they thought of was your faith and your love. That'd be an amazing thing. See, that's what the Church of Colossae had. They had faith and love that was so evident. That's what the world saw. Now, after Paul kind of says, hey, I'm praying always for you, and the reason I'm praying always for you is because your faith is evident, your love is evident, you're really getting out there and shining for the Lord, and I'm praying for you to keep going deeper. Now he reveals what he's actually praying for, verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, see that theme again, praying always for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now, there's three things, if you're taking notes there, that Paul says, I'm praying for you guys for. The first one he's praying for, him for is that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Verse 9, filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What a great prayer. To be filled with the wisdom and knowledge of God. Now, just stop for a second. How many times do you make big choices and decisions in life and you don't check with God? Or maybe you ask Him to do the quick rubber stamp prayer. Lord, we're going out to fill in the blank. We're going out to buy this van. I ask that you would bless it. Just rubber stamp it, Lord. Lord, I'm starting a new job. Just ask for your blessing upon it. I hope he does bless you at your new job, but sometimes we need to go back and say, Lord, do you want us to buy that van? Lord, what job do you want me to have? See, when you're filled with the wisdom and knowledge and spiritual understanding, you're saying, Lord, I'm in constant communication with you for you to let me know what you want me to do. When I see Christians that are just totally confused, remember the Bible says God is not a God of confusion. When you see Christians totally confused, they need to stop and spend a little bit more time with the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? What is your wisdom for me? What is your spiritual understanding? What is your knowledge? Don't you get frustrated sometimes when you see those Christians that always know what God wants them to do? Sometimes they bother me. It's like, how can you know? I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. Generally, those people that always know what God wants them to do are the ones that are usually deep in prayer with Him. And they spend a lot of time seeking His will. Seeking his understanding. I'm telling you, back to our one-minute devotions with God. If you're only going to give God a tiny little slice of your time, don't expect him to really reveal a lot of what he wants you to do. You know, we all have jobs probably. We all have bosses that we have to deal with. Now, maybe for some of you, one minute with your boss a day would be great. I don't know. But the truth of the matter is, if you only had a tiny little sliver to say, what does God want me to do or what am I supposed to do today? you would not have much direction in life. You know, sometimes in prayer we need to do as much listening as we do talking. So the first thing that Paul prayed for is they'd be filled with knowledge, wisdom, spiritual understanding. Now the next thing he prayed for, if you will, in verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work. Now he prays for fruit. First thing he says is, I want you to be filled. Next thing is, I want you to be fruitful. Now a lot of times we want to flip that. I want to be fruitful. 
I want to go out there and do something. You've got to be filled first. If you're not filled first with the Spirit and wisdom and understanding, how can you be fruitful? You're just trying to be fruitful in your own efforts, in your own flesh. You can't do it. Before you go out to do anything, you have to be filled. You have to be trained. You have to be practiced up in the sense of saying, okay, I'm ready for this. You know, we say this a lot out here. If you're ever trying to figure out what your purpose in life is, it's very, very simple. John 15:8. you don't need to turn there. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So you'll be my disciples. Your purpose in life is very simple, straightforward. Go bear fruit for Jesus Christ. It's not complicated. Now, how do you bear fruit? That gets to a little more detail. But your goal in life is just to simply shine for Jesus Christ. And if you're not doing that first, you're really going to feel an emptiness and a confusion. What am I supposed to do? Because when you know what you're supposed to do, you do it. Very simply put, we say, know where you're called, go where you're called. Okay, well, how am I supposed to know where I'm called? Go back to the first step. Be filled with wisdom, spiritual understanding. Come and hear and be learned and be taught. And then you'll know what God wants you to do. And then when God says go, you go. And as you go, then you're fruitful. What's the last thing that Paul says? Verse 11, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now that word strengthened, I looked it up in the original Greek because I was hoping that it would have some type of other word that began with an F. So we could have be filled, be fruitful, and be fortified or something. It only means strengthened, guys. Sorry. I like those little analogies that didn't work. So be filled, be fruitful, and then be strengthened. Now why is strengthened last? You know how tough it is to be fruitful? It's hard. You know how tough it is to go home to that marriage of where the one person's not saved or is going backwards to always be fruitful? You know how tough it is to go into a workplace where you're the only believer in a very dark world? You know how tough it is to go to school when the majority of people could care less about Jesus Christ? It is tough. It is tough to be fruitful. And what happens is you've got a lot of believers that get filled. Then you have a lot of believers that go to be fruitful. And then as they run into problems, there's no strength. And they wilter and fade and fall away. Those are the ones that say, well, I tried. I tried leading that ministry. I tried leading that Bible study. Everybody was against me. You need to be strengthened. I tried going into work, like you said, and shining for the Lord. And everybody was against me. You need to be strengthened. See, this is an ongoing process of being filled, fruitful, and strengthened. That's why Paul says, do it always. He's praying always for it. Turn, if you will, real quick to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. One of my favorite verses that deal with this idea of being fruitful and hanging in there. Galatians chapter 6. Because I think it's interesting when he says, strengthened with all patience and long-suffering. Now, patience, we know what that is. Long-suffering, some of you may say, okay, what exactly is that word? Some translations translated endurance. Now, I find this interesting that patience and long-suffering are endurance. Okay, what's the only way to get patience? To go through things that test your patience. There's no other way to get patience. If you are having problems being patient in life, patient for waiting for God to work, patient in dealing with non-believers, patient in your emotions, the only way to get more patience is for you to say, okay, Lord, Try me. Test me. Now, that's not fun. I'll tell you right now. That's why the next word is long-suffering or endurance. Can you endure through those trials and testing? Look at Galatians 6, 
Verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Verse of the day right there. If let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. What does that verse tell me? First off, number one, I am going to grow weary. That's a fact. I'm going to grow weary in trying to stand for Christ. It wears me down. But number two, I'm doing good. It's worthwhile in the long run. In due season, we shall reap. Now, what's it mean? We shall reap. There will be fruit that comes out of this. Well, when's that fruit coming? I prayed for years for my kids to know the Lord. I don't see any fruit yet. I prayed for years for my life to be different, my marriage to be different, my job to be different. I don't see anything happening yet. Let me ask you this. Are you growing weary? You bet I'm growing weary. Are you doing good? I'm trying to do good. Then don't lose heart. It will come eventually. When? That I can't tell you. But this verse promises me right here. In due season you shall reap if you do not lose heart. Hang in there. I know a lot of people that lose heart. They lose heart. They're so close to the finish line. They're so close to things finally starting to click in their lives and things be different, and they just give up and lose heart. And they say, where's the fruit? Where's the change? Where's the difference? You have to endure. Be patient. Be long-suffering. Is that easy to do? It's not. And that's why, isn't it fascinating, the last word mentioned in our verse 11 here, back in Colossians, For all patience and long-suffering, look at that last word, with joy. See, this is the topper to it all. I'm supposed to be filled with his wisdom and spiritual understanding. When I'm filled, I'll be fruitful. When I'm fruitful, I'll go out there and I'll be strengthened to not lose heart, to stay in there and to be patient and endure through all long-suffering. And I'm going to do it with joy. I know a lot of Christians, sometimes myself included, I endure. I have patience. I have long-suffering. I'll go through trials, and there will be no joy. (laughs) No joy at all. I'm the most grumpy, disgruntled Christian you've ever seen. And I get through the trial, but I didn't do it with joy. See, this is the thing. To me, what separates Christianity from the world is we're going to suffer just like the world suffers. We're going to go through tragedy just like the world goes through tragedy. We're going to get the bad diagnoses from the doctor. We're going to have problems in our families. We're going to have problems at work. We're going to get laid off. The only difference is no matter what happens in our life, God says there's joy. And how many times have you heard us say out here, it's not joy in your circumstances. It's joy in the Lord. Sometimes your circumstances in life are not very joyful. Some of you are going through things right now where there's no joy in that event, there's no happiness in that event, but there's always joy in the Lord. Because God is your joy. He is your strength. Did you catch that in verse 11? Strengthened with all might according to His glorious power. See, if you try to do it on your own, you can't. It's His power. His power that does it. So, you are filled with His wisdom and understanding. You're fruitful in His good work. Then you're strengthened in His power to meet the challenges that you're going to face. Some of you are going to go out of this church today and you're going to face challenges as soon as you get home. Some of you are going to get up tomorrow and go to work and you're going to face challenges as soon as you get to work. Some of you, there's a challenge coming and you don't even realize it yet. But when you're filled and you're fruitful and you're strengthened, you can face that challenge with joy. How? Because Christ is the head. 
He is the head that gets us through. Our nourishment comes from him. Everything we do comes from him. So the purpose of the book of Colossians is what? Jesus is the focus of everything we do. When we have our focus on him, he gets us through it. This church had their focus on Christ. They had heard it, they had been taught it, and now they were living it. Paul says, your faith and your love are evident to all. Let's get out there and not just hear it. Let's not get out there and just say it. Let's get out there and live it. And all we do and all we say, and it really make a difference in our world, our homes,